Well, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. A very warm welcome to uh, the Wren Suite in St. Paul's Crypt, built by Christopher Wren. Uh, not with this in mind, I don't think, um, but we're delighted that you're here this afternoon for our seminar, our forum meeting. Uh, my name's David Ison. I'm the Dean of the Cathedral here, and it's my privilege to be chairing this particular event. Um, and we welcome very warmly the Right Reverend Graham Tomlin, um, who is uh, coming to speak about his book, if you haven't seen it, called the, uh, the Pound, Bound to be Free, The Paradox of Freedom. Um, so it's freely available at a price of X. Um, <laughs> it's one of the paradoxes of the books about freedom. Um, Graham is a colleague of mine in the diocese. He is the Bishop of Kensington, the president of St. Melitus College, which trains clergy. He served a curacy in the Diocese of Exeter, where I've also served. Um, he's been chaplain of Jesus College, Oxford, vice principal of Wycliffe Hall, Oxford, taught in the theology faculty of Oxford University, specialising in the Reformation. He was involved in the foundation of and was appointed first dean of St. Melitus College, which is now training, uh, I think, a majority of ordinands in the Church of England, of quite a large number. Um, oh, a fifth. Well, that's quite a... Okay, it's quite a large number uh, for one institution. Um, and became Bishop of Kensington in 2015, very involved in the response to the Grenfell Tower fire of 2017, um, and got engaged very much in work with local churches and local Christians there, supporting people who went through that experience. He's also a devoted follower of Bristol City, and is worrying at the moment because they've got their final match of the season to see whether they're going to end up in the playoffs or not. So our sympathies are with him, but we trust he's turned off his tweet thing that lets him know what the result will be. Um, he's written various books, uh, and this is his latest book about freedom. He's going to speak for about 40 minutes, and there will then be time for questions. Uh, and uh, Graham and I are mic'd up, so we'll be sitting at the table for the questions, but I'll need to repeat the questions when you've asked them so that then they get put onto the film. This is being filmed uh, so that we put our videos on the web so they're accessible to people all over the world. And I've had people speak to me from America and from Hungary and from other places who have followed our seminars here at St. Paul's. Um, so we're delighted you're here to help make that happen. So Graham, over to you. Thank you very much. Please do welcome Graham. Thank you, David, very much indeed, and uh, it's very good to be with you today. And uh, our theme for this afternoon is freedom. And uh, I guess we all know that there are some things that promise freedom but don't always deliver. Uh, I am old enough to remember the day when someone came to me and said, uh, there's this new invention that is going to change our lives. It's going to transform everything. It's called email. <laughs> and uh, no longer will you have to, when you want to write a letter to someone, get a bit of paper out and write their address and write it all down on paper and put it in an envelope, put a stamp on it, and put it in the post box and wait for a week until it arrives somewhere else and then wait for another week until they reply back again. You won't have to do that anymore. You'll just type it out on a screen, press a button, off it'll go, they will, press, they will do the same, it will come back straight away. What are we going to do with all the time we've got left? <laughs> when email comes, we'll be free. Anybody feels liberated by email? Probably not. Again, I'm old enough to remember the day when someone came and said, there's another new invention that's going to transform our lives. They are called mobile phones. They only have to wait at home for a phone call because the phone is wired to the wall with a, a little wire. 
and you can wait for the phone call to come in. Um, but you can go wherever you like, and you can phone anybody, and they'll have their mobile phone, and you'll have yours, and it'll be it'll liberate us. Again, anyone feel liberated by their mobile phone? And we don't actually feel liberated by it, we feel chained to them all of the time. There's that moment when you go out, I've got my phone with me. And uh, we feel somehow sort of captured, enslaved in some ways by the technology. Sometimes it's a bit more serious than that. Uh, I don't know if you remember where you were on the 7th of January 2015. Even if you remember what happened on that day. It was the day when uh, a number of gunmen walked into the Charlie Hebdo offices in Paris and uh, shot dead 12 people. And then uh, four other Jewish people were killed in a kosher supermarket a little bit later on. And I remember the, remember the, the world uh, reacted with a passion. And there was a big uh, sort of a Twitter storm around it with the hashtag, just be Charlie. And I remember, um, I, I do Twitter a fair bit, and um, I remember going on Twitter and trying to compose my, my, my message to express my kind of horror at what happened uh, in this kind of barbaric uh, attack. And, um, but suddenly I found myself pausing before I pressed the little button that posted my tweet out to the world. Because I suddenly found myself slightly conflicted. Because on the one hand, I wanted to express my horror along with everybody else at this terrible thing that had happened. But at the same time, it was part of me also said, do I actually want to defend the kind of freedom that the uh, authors and um, uh, writers and uh, cartoonists that Charlie Hebdo wanted to espouse? In other words, the freedom to insult, uh, to denigrate uh, a whole group of people around the world, Muslims who had a great veneration for the Prophet Muhammad, do I want to celebrate that kind of freedom either? That kind of freedom to offend, to insult, to belittle other people and their convictions was not something I particularly wanted to defend either. So we are conflicted about this idea of freedom, and yet it is a hugely valued thing in the modern world. You can tell what a culture values by what it goes to war over. In the 17th century, uh, we fought our wars over religion. Now, in the 19th century, we tended to fight our way, our wars over empire. In the 20th and the 21st century, we fought our wars over freedom. The Second World War was a war for freedom, freedom from Nazi tyranny across Europe and beyond. Uh, even more recently, uh, our more recent wars are often, have often been fought explicitly or unexplicitly, uh, fought in the name of freedom. The first Iraq war, the offensive launched by the Allies, was called Operation Enduring Freedom. And the idea was, in many of our recent wars, to export Western ideas of democracy and freedom to other parts of the world that didn't seem to experience these things. And uh, we wanted to, um, to, to bring freedom to parts of the world that didn't have them. Those wars didn't go quite so well, as we now know. <coughs> but all of this reflection on freedom, particularly our common uh, value of freedom in the Western world, the way in which we, uh, we value it so much, um, if you're a politician, you want to kind of show that you are worth voting for by saying you're extending freedom to people. And freedom is almost universally seen as a, a good thing. And anyone restricting freedom seems to be saying that uh, uh, seems to be not a good thing. But what do we mean by freedom? And how do we understand it? And uh, in the book, uh, Bound to be Free, I tried to do a little bit of um, sort of intellectual archaeology uh, 
around freedom and who were the key architects of freedom? Who were the people who constructed and helped to develop our understanding of freedom and how we think of it? And uh, in, well, there are a number of different people and characters that uh, might fit into this category of architects of freedom, but I particularly want to focus on three of them. One is uh, John Locke. John Locke, this um, uh, English philosopher, uh, who has this idea of freedom as Freedom is the freedom of the individual. The individual born into the world is born into the world with a blank slate. In other words, we don't have any pre-existing ideas, convictions in our minds, as some previous philosophers have suggested. But Locke suggests that we as individuals are born into the world with a kind of blank slate in our minds. And it's our experiences that write those ideas into our minds. For him, the individual is the fundamental unit of society. So we are individuals. And humanity in its original state of nature, he argues, was originally, in the very first stages of the human race, we were all individuals free and equal with one another. But he then goes on to say that divine law sets limits on this freedom. Because, he says, yes, we as individuals have our own particular individual freedoms, and yet others also have their freedoms as well. And uh, that I as an individual, yes, I belong to God, and I've been given certain freedoms by God, but you also are an individual, you also belong to God, and you also have been <laughs> given freedoms. And these freedoms are particularly the freedom, as he calls it, to life, liberty, and estate. So we have a freedom life. We have a freedom not to have life taken away from us. We have a freedom of liberty, a freedom to act and to um, perform and to um, choose as we wish, uh, but also freedom of estate, freedom to possess uh, property and land. And so he says that uh, this basic divine law, this kind of structure of the universe, uh, gives and safeguards individual human rights to these things, rights to life liberty and the states. But because we are not sole individuals, because we have to live together in society, there are limits on our use of these rights. And so he argues that societies and governments in particular arise as we emerge from that original primeval state of nature to form communities that want to live together well. And so he recognises that if we all have unfettered use of our rights to life, liberty, and estate. We do exactly what we want. We would start infringing upon each other's rights. And therefore, this divine law sets some limits on the use of our freedoms. And this is what he calls the social contract. Locke is one of a number of authors of the social contract, where our natural state of freedom is sacrificed for a broader sense of order within society. And so government sets limits on our freedom. He talks about freedom in everything which the rule of law does not prescribe. So for Locke, freedom is the preservation of a kind of private space for freedom around each one of us, in which we as individuals are at liberty to use and just dispose of our goods and our property and our time and so on, bounded by laws that restrict our total freedom and preserve private liberties from the intrusion of others. So governments and societies arise to both safeguard 
but also police our own individual freedoms. We can be and do and choose and act exactly as we like, as long as we do not infringe the freedom of others to be and do and act as they choose at the same time. And so the role of government for him is not to promote virtue, as in perhaps an older um, view of uh, politics and society, but the role of government is to police the boundaries of individual personal freedom, to secure our rights to life, liberty and estate. So I'll quote something that he says. He says, The natural liberty of man is to be free from any superior power on earth and not to be under the will or legislative authority of man, but only to have the law of nature for his rule. The liberty of man in society is to be under no other legislative power but that established by consent in the Commonwealth. He talks about liberty as a liberty to follow my own will in all things, where the rule prescribes not and not to be subject to the inconstant, unknown, arbitrary will of another man. So here is Locke's idea of freedom. Freedom of the individual to choose and to be and to do as they wish, as long as they don't infringe upon the rights of others. Number two in my list of people who are architects of freedom in the modern world is a rather strange um, uh, man from Geneva called Jean-Jacques Rousseau. And um, Rousseau's probably most famous statement is his, um, his slogan, Man is born free and everywhere is found in chains. Now, whereas John Locke saw government and society as a good thing, government is good because it polices and safeguards our individual freedoms. Um, Civilisation is an advance, it's a progress, it's a good thing that we have government to make sure we don't get chaos in society. Rousseau thinks government and society are bad things. Not society, he thinks that government and rule of law are necessarily, that's kind of necessary, but they are a necessary evil, as it were. He talks about societies and laws which gave new fetters to the weak and new forces to the rich. They ir- laws irretrievably destroyed natural liberty, established forever the law of property and inequality, changed adroit usurpation into an irrevocable right, and for the profit of a few ambitious men, henceforth subjected the entire human race to labour, servitude and misery. As you can see, he's not very keen on laws and government and so on. And what he argues is that uh, human beings have, since their original state of nature, he kind of agrees with Locke in saying originally we were kind of free and, um, uh, and able to choose as we wish. But as time has gone on, freedom, human beings have become domesticated. We've, become, we've lost our natural agility and strength that we had in our primeval state. Uh, he thinks of marriage as a plot to subjugate men. <laughs> um, he thinks of land ownership. Land ownership is a bad thing because it leads to strife and jealousy. A time when everyone, someone first drew a little line around a bit of land and said, this land is mine, that was the beginning of civilization and it was a bad thing. So he talks about the enslaved state of humanity in society. His answer to that problem, the idea of society as a bad thing, enslaving us, putting restrictions upon us, is not so much nostalgia. Sometimes Rousseau is accused of being a nostalgic thinker, taking us back to a a kind of golden age when everything was fine, you know, the noble savage and all that. It's actually not that, it's education. Education is his golden bullet. He envisages a society created by individuals who have learnt freedom 
And we learn freedom, he says, not by studying past wisdom, but by allowing nature to take its course. So, for example, geography. You learn geography not by studying books on geography, or a child learns in school, not by studying books in a classroom, by, by letting the child wander free in the fields, getting lost and finding their way home. Freedom is found by casting off custom and social expectations. One of his uh, most um, influential works was in a work called Emile, or on education, where he envisages a young boy being educated. And in this he writes along these lines. He says, nature provides for the child's growth in her own fashion, and this should never be thwarted. Do not make him sit still when he wants to run about, nor run when he wants to be quiet. If we did not spoil our children's wills by our blunders, their desires would be free from caprice. Let them run, jump, and shout to their heart's content. And you wonder whether he ever had toddlers, children at all, right? had to look after them. In fact, actually, he doesn't have a very good, good record with his own children. We tended to kind of send away to be looked after by other people rather than allowing them in his own house. And uh, maybe that's a little, you know, an episode of how slightly unrealistic his view of childhood is. Anyway, this is uh, Rousseau's idea. Now, the third person um, I want to reference in terms of our contemporary ideas of freedom is, again, a 19th century, um, again, British philosopher, uh, John Stuart Mill, with his famous book on liberty. And in that work, he champions individual freedoms, individual freedoms, particularly freedoms of expression. He says, as the free development of individuality is one of the leading essentials of well-being. For him, the only reason to interfere with another person's liberty is to protect them from physical harm. And so this is uh, Mill's famous principle of harm. The only reason why we should intervene to stop someone doing what they want to do is if they're going to harm themselves or if they're going to harm someone else. He talks about freedom as liberty of tastes and pursuits, doing as we like without impediment from our fellow creatures, so long as what we do does not harm them. He is the, the champion of non-conformity. Uh, he says there's no grounds for silencing another person's opinion in society, even if that were the only person in the entire society to hold that opinion. We should never uh, infringe upon freedom of speech unless that causes harm to someone else. For him, innovation that comes from free thinking is what develops uh, a society. It, innovation happens by encouraging spontaneous individuality, originality and expression. And so where the individual is concerned, society has no right at all to intervene except according to the principle of harm, when a person is going to harm themselves or harm someone else. We can limit personal freedom only where society is threatened. Liberty consists, he says, in doing what one desires. So there we have three key figures, key thinkers, who have shaped our view of freedom. If I can summarise them. Locke is this idea, has this idea of freedom as freedom of as personal space for action. Each one of us has, if you like, a personal uh, space around us governed by the state that polices the boundaries between us and views the state and government as the guardian of personal freedom. I am free to do what I like with my possessions as long as I'm mindful of the needs of others. Rousseau's idea is the idea of freedom as some kind of return to a natural state 
throwing off custom and convention and the restrictions that society brings. The idea that the natural is good is an idea that really comes from Rousseau. Next time you go to the supermarket and you look around at your shampoo and it tells you that the shampoo is natural or the breakfast cereal was natural. Maybe the reason why he uses those words is because of Jean-Jacques Rousseau. And then Mill, the idea of freedom of freedom of expression, freedom of speech, originality, individuality, the importance of thinking for yourself. That's all very much at the heart of Mill's idea of freedom. Now, I suspect as I've described this, you probably all recognise something of this idea of freedom. Because it is the idea of freedom that we tend to adopt in our society and Western societies today. Uh, the freedom of speech, freedom to return to the, the state of nature, as it were. Freedom is personal space management. Freedom to do and to be as I choose, as long as I don't harm anybody else. That's pretty much standardly, I think, the way we understand freedom. But I think there are one or two problems, some of them more severe than others, uh, with this particular view of freedom. One or two might be things like this. Um, the idea that, is there such a thing as personal space that doesn't affect others? Especially in an age of social media, where almost nothing we do is private, uh, is there such a thing as activities that simply affect ourselves and don't affect other people in a much more interconnected world than we are today than Mill or Locke or Rousseau were in? Uh, can there be actions that don't affect others in one way or another? Um, secondly, the idea of freedom is to do with purely individual freedoms and the idea that there is just the individual and then the state. Is that actually right? Is there nothing in between the individual and the state? Is there a role for more local community action uh, where people gather together to create um, um, guidance for direction and action? Third problem, what really happens when you cast off the shackles of custom and civilization, as Rousseau suggested that you do? Um, some of you might remember William Golding's um, very influential book, Lord of the Flies, that um, uh, narrative of um, young schoolboys who are going to land on a desert island and they simply have to construct their own society from, from nothing. And actually what happens is chaos and disorder, the will to power takes over doesn't actually lead uh, to kind of freedom and liberty uh, at all. So there is one main problem that goes beyond all of these, I think. And it's what this view of freedom does to the way that we view each other. If we see freedom as my individual freedom to do as I choose, as long as I don't harm someone else, if my freedom is freedom to be and to act choose to do what I, do what I like with my property and my time and my energy, as long as I don't harm you, what does that make me think of you? Well, what it does, I suggest, is it makes me think of you as, at best, a limitation, or at worst, a threat to my freedom. It makes us view one another not so much as a gift, but as a limitation or a threat. I might want to do all kinds of things that I want to do, but you might not want me to do those things. I might like to play my music loud on a summer's evening, but my neighbour next door to me might not like loud music, so I can't do it. And I get frustrated because I can't do what I want to do, because my neighbour is a limitation on my freedom. Similarly, my 
neighbour might like to play his music loud on a summer's night, and he can't because I don't like that, so I become a limitation or a threat to him. We need the state to police our personal freedoms from the incursions of others, but what that does, the more we express this, it leads to actually the growth of the state, which is a slightly ironic thing that libertarian tradition doesn't like big government, but actually it ends up with big government. Where there's no common good presupposed, the only way to preserve personal freedoms is an ever-expanding state to restrict the actions that might inhibit others. You could put it this way. Every society tries to do two things. Every society tries to find a way to uh, enable personal flourishing. Um, you want to live in a society where there's a certain degree of freedom. You can be and choose how you want to be, and you want to flourish as an individual person. So every society tries to, to create a certain amount of space for that to happen. But at the same time, every society also tries to create a sense of, of social cohesion, about the way in which we sort of live and work together. And this view of freedom, which we might call a kind of libertarian idea of freedom, is quite good perhaps on the first. It allows quite a bit of space for personal choice, expression, and freedom. But it doesn't do quite so well on the second. We've noticed more recently in our society how we are becoming more angry with one another and more fractious, more divided. And maybe it's not just Brexit that is producing that, but it's an underlying sense of freedom. This idea of freedom is freedom to do as I choose as long as I don't harm anybody else that sets up oppositional relationships where we view each other as threats or limitations on our freedom rather than gifts to one another. So if this is the view of freedom we have in our society, and if I've begun to offer something of a critique of it, what then is a Christian view of freedom? And in the book I try to develop that through um, a line of thinking, through uh, St. Paul, through uh, um, St. Augustine, through Anselm, through uh, the medieval period, uh, Aquinas, uh, Luther, Kierkegaard and others. And maybe we could sum it up by a text from uh, the book of Galatians where Paul talks about freedom. And he says this, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. You, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. The entire law is summed up in a single command, love your neighbour as yourself. So there is Paul's very dense view of Christian freedom. Now what does he mean by that? Let me just draw out three things I think that Paul now, seems to, to highlight, and that I think are also true of an ongoing tradition of Christian, think, uh, Christian thinking on freedom. And the first is to say that we are not as free as we think. Paul talks about, do not let yourself be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. And uh, the more you read St. Paul, you begin to realise that he, and many New Testament authors, understand the world to be in chains of hostile powers that enslave it. He writes in uh, the previous chapter, Galatians 4, when we were under age, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. And there's this uh, strange idea, he has the stoikeia, the elemental uh, forces of the world. Uh, for St. Paul, uh, he seemed to think this was the case. And um, it, this, these elemental sort of forces of the world worked in different ways. So, he seems to think from the Jewish world, the Jewish law was one of these elemental forces that held the world in, in bondage. And from Gentiles, it was the, the pagan gods uh, that were restricting 
and the freedom that was God's gift to us. Gentiles were bound by these mysterious powers at work. And for Paul, the main effect of sin is not actually that it renders us guilty, but that it renders us unfree. Sin enslaves us. And what is needed is liberation from that slavery. Now, we don't think about the elemental spirits of the world. We don't tend to think of ourselves as in bondage under the Jewish law or pagan gods. But if we try to translate that into our world, we can perhaps realise that Paul maybe has a point. Today, we begin to realise we are not as free as we think either. We are controlled and manipulated by all kinds of advertising and marketing campaigns and strategies designed to make us think we need things we don't and to want things that will actually harm and damage us and our world. We think we are free, but we are pulled this way and that by our desires and by all kinds of influences externally and internally. A while ago, I tried to buy my wife a camera for her birthday. And uh, I went online to try and sort of find a camera. And then I noticed for the next few weeks, every time I looked at any particular website, pop up would pop a, 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 an advert for a camera. How do they know that I'm looking for a camera? Of course they know you're looking for a camera. We are now beginning to be much more aware of that. The whole Cambridge Analytica Facebook question made us realise that all kinds of forces are out there influencing the way we think uh, and even influencing the way we vote in a way that we were hardly aware of. Um, there's that sense of, uh, of, of, of external forces influencing us, making us think uh, and desire certain things. But if we step back from them, we don't always desire at all. So there are external forces in, in that are influencing the way we think, but also there are in internal forces as well. Uh, we often sit back and we reflect about how we long to be free of some of those things that arise in our own hearts, whether that might be anger or greed or resentment or jealousy. We wish we could be free from them, but we're not. Sometimes those forces are very obvious. When we see someone who has a very obvious addiction to pornography or to, to alcohol or to food, and they wish to be free from that, but you realise when you're addicted, when you're an addict, you can't simply free yourself from it. And of course the heroin addict thinks they are free to take the extra shot of heroin, but from the outside you realise that they're not free at all, they are bound to do it. In a sense, what Paul's diagnosis of the human condition is that, that, that all of us in one sense are addicts, not necessarily to obvious things like pornography or alcohol or or, um, or, or so on, but we're addicts to jealousy, we're addicts to, 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 to envy, and we're addicts uh, to uh, resentment, and we're addicts to whatever those things are that arise in our hearts that we wish we could somehow be free from, uh, but we're not. The libertarian tradition says we are free to do what we want, but so often what we want is precisely the problem, because what we want is the very thing that will destroy us, and increasingly we realise will destroy our planet as well. That's the first thing that seems to me about a Christian idea of freedom, that we are not as free as we think we are. second thing that a Christian view of freedom tells us is that Christ sets us free. So Paul says, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. And that in some way he understands that in the incarnation, the, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Jesus, God has taken on the powers that enslave the human race and has defeated them. And therefore, as a result... He proclaims that Jews are no longer bound to follow the Jewish law and the Gentiles are now freed from these mysterious powers that are, that, uh, that, are, that are now broken. The Christian gospel for him is a declaration of freedom. 
that the Christian is someone who is forgiven, ransomed, free from all that enslaves him or her. We might interpret that in all kinds of different ways. We might particularly interpret it as freedom from shame, freedom from that sense of a burdened conscience of what we have done or been, or decisions we have made that we wish we had not made, freedom from shame, but also freedom from fear, freedom from fear of the future, because the future has been resolved in the resurrection of Christ. We know it all ends well. It's freedom from death, freedom from all the things that threaten human life. And as a result of this, St. Paul thinks that in the Christian life, different desires start to take root in us through to the work of the Holy Spirit, the desire to please God, to follow his way. And this begins to help us to see a different Christian vision of freedom. That freedom is actually freedom not to do what I want. When what I want is what will actually destroy me, or my relationships, or my family, or my community, or my planet. It's freedom from the compulsion to follow destructive desires and the habits of the sinful human will. Those very impulses and habits and desires which so often destroy communities and marriages and relationships and families and lives, communities and environments. And so that leads us to the third thing I think that Paul seems to suggest as a Christian view of freedom. The freedom is not so much freedom to do and to be what we choose, but freedom to do and to be what we were created to be. And what this suggests is that in Christian life, that there is a particular purpose for human life. The libertarian tradition uh, refuses to lay down any particular purpose. Freedom is whatever you want to be. Freedom is whatever you want to do. But the Christian vision of freedom says there is a particular purpose. There is a direction. There is a trajectory. There is a telos for human life. Now, to help understand the difference between these two kinds of freedom, let me give you maybe a couple of examples. Um, uh, imagine two sisters growing up. Both of them love music. Uh, one of them decides that um, although she loves music, she doesn't really want to go to lessons and learn the piano uh, like her parents wanted to. And so rather than practicing her scales and going to the lessons, she bunks off and goes to parties and chats to her friends and does all kinds of other things. And she never quite learns to play the piano. Her other sister, on the other hand, also loves music, but she decides not to go to the parties and not to go to everything else. And she spends a lot, a lot of time learning her scales and learning to play the piano. She does the lessons. She practices hard. And what happens as a result of these two forms of activity, the question is, who is ultimately free? One sister might say, well, I'm free because I can do whatever I want. The other sister says, no, I am free to create beautiful music on a piano in a way that my sister isn't. The first sister, faced by a piano, can't do much with it. She's not free to create anything of any great beauty. The other sister, because she has submitted to this process of change and transformation and, and, and learning, is suddenly free not just to play sheet music, but also to improvise. She is free to create music in a way that the other sister isn't. Let me give you another example. Maybe you're working for a firm here in London and you go into work on a Monday morning and your boss says to you, uh, uh, 
well, we have a great need for someone like you in our Berlin office. And so we would like you to move to Berlin next week. And you say, I don't, I don't speak any German. That's all right, we will pay for lessons for you. So you land in, German, in Germany, in Berlin. Now, again, you've got two choices. You can either say, well, I'm just going to go out, you know, go to the beer keller and do all the things that Germans do and eat sausages and everything else. And I'm not going to learn German, I don't need to worry about that. Um, but the problem is, the more you go on, the more you try to have conversations with people that you can't communicate. And you try to understand, you, you have a bit of rudimentary German, but you, you keep on misunderstanding what people are saying to you and they misunderstand what you're trying to say to them. You're not free to have a conversation. You're not free from mistakes. But then another trajectory is you say, okay, I'm actually going to learn German. And you go to the classes, and you take a teacher, and you learn the vocabulary, and you learn, you, you give yourself to this discipline of learning German. And what happens is that you learn the freedom to converse. You learn freedom from mistakes. You learn the freedom of open conversation where you can be understood and other people can understand you. <coughs> It's what uh, philosophers have often called the difference between the freedom of indifference and a freedom for excellence. The freedom of indifference is the freedom to do what you like with no particular goal, no aim, no purpose. It assumes there is no particular goal for human beings. You have to make up your own. And freedom is freedom from anything who inhibits you from pursuing your own particular goal. Freedom for excellence says that there is a goal for human beings. Freedom is the freedom to reach that goal. And freedom is therefore freedom from anything that would stop me reaching that goal. It's freedom from anything that would stop me becoming what I was created to be. Now, I suggest that Christian freedom is that second. It is a freedom for a particular purpose. What then is that purpose? Well, we get a hint of it in what St. Paul says in that reading a few moments ago. The entire law is summed up in a single command, love your neighbour as yourself. When Jesus was asked the question, what is the greatest commandment? He didn't say, be yourself. That's what we would say today. He says, the greatest commandment is to, learn to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and your neighbour as yourself. It is to cultivate a kind of life that is full of love for God and love for your neighbour. Love for God, which means gratitude for all that God gives, a heart and a spirit which is always thankful, receiving from God, but also a heart that is full of generosity towards the neighbour. Love for God and love for neighbour can be translated as gratitude and generosity. And if this is the purpose for human life, that you and I become people capable of love for God and love for our neighbours, love for one another, people full of gratitude and generosity, freedom is freedom from anything that would stop us becoming that kind of person. And so that means freedom from internal impulses that would stop us becoming that kind of person. Freedom from jealousy and fear and anxiety pride and lust and greed and all those things that turn us in upon ourselves, away from God and away from one another. It's freedom from external influences that would stop us becoming that kind of person. Poverty, injustice, violence, economic systems that make us think that we're not complete unless we get this bit of property or money or status or things or whatever it might be. So Christian freedom is not so much the freedom to do what I want, it's the freedom to be able to love my neighbour. 
And if you begin to think about what that means, you begin to think it's not that straightforward to love your neighbour. First, you have to fight against your own self-interest and that protectiveness that wants to guard our own priorities first rather than think about anybody else. But then you have to think about how can I love my neighbour? What does my neighbour need? It means getting into that person's mind and heart and, and soul. It means understanding how God sees them and how they see themselves and how you can actually exercise love towards that person. It is a skill to be learned, like learning the piano or learning German. It is something you learn over a lifetime. Now this view of freedom, I suggest, resolves a lot of the problems that our secular libertarian freedom doesn't. In this view of freedom, my neighbour is not a limitation or a threat to my freedom, but is in fact a gift to me. There's someone without whom I cannot become all I am meant to be. If I am meant to become someone capable of love for my neighbour, putting it bluntly, I need someone to practice on. I need you, and you need me. We cannot become people of love for the neighbour without the neighbour to love. We become gifts to one another, without whom we cannot become all that we are intended to be. Again, God becomes not a threat to my freedom, forcing laws and restrictions on me that inhibit my freedom to choose, but the one without whom I cannot become all I am meant to be. Because it's only in the context of becoming someone who views the world with gratitude, someone who receives divine love and divine gift all the time, that rather than someone who thinks that I somehow earn these or, or have a right to them, that I can become truly human and truly free. Only in the context of knowing that I am loved and learning to love God can I become someone free to love other people. And again, when it comes to society, I suggest that this view of freedom squares the circle of personal flourishing and social cohesion much better than the secular libertarian view does either. Because on this, this enables personal freedom and personal flourishing. If I am to become someone full of love for God and love for my neighbour, that surely is the most healthy, happy person you might be. This doesn't necessarily mean everything goes well for you or that you become wealthy, but that's not the measure that's here. To become someone full of love for you, for God and your neighbour, is actual the definition of human flourishing. But it also provides social cohesion. Imagine a society, if we were a human society here, where all of our attention was thinking, well, how can I express love for you, and for you, and for you? And I didn't have to worry too much about my own needs, because you were thinking about my needs before I was. That would be a much more cohesive, healthy human society, where we're all protecting our own space against one another. This gives a view of freedom, that we are free to be who we were created to be. Creatures capable of and naturally inclined towards self-sacrificial love, that freedom to say no to ourselves and yes to the good of my neighbour, my wife, my children, my friend, or even my enemy. We draw these reflections to a close. Our culture tells us that we will be free when we discover ourselves, when we somehow look inside to find out who we really are, and we become freed from other people and their expectations upon us. Christian faith tells us that we will be free when we lose ourselves, when we become less self-obsessed, and become free to be more interested in our neighbour's welfare than we are in our own. And isn't it often so much our own self-obsession 
that makes us anxious, fearful, wondering what other people think of us. Imagine losing that self-obsession. Imagine losing that fear of what other people think of us all the time. Imagine being able to be so caught up in the welfare of others that we no longer had time to worry about our own, but that didn't matter because others were looking after our interests anyway. Imagine being free from the isolation and the loneliness that is so often the story of life in cities like London and others. The ultimate freedom that Christian faith offers is freedom to do the one thing that makes us happy, that makes a good community function. As St Paul puts it, to serve one another in love. Thank you very much. Thank you, Graham, very much indeed. We've got about a quarter of an hour. Um, has anyone got a question they'd like to put to Bishop Graham? Okay, so the, the question is about... Uh, now I'm going to try and summarise all that in two seconds. <laughs> the question about that is, uh, what do you do for those who actually see liberation as freedom from self entirely and actually are us not having a self at all? And that's sure. a, yeah. an extreme way of pushing it. Is it answer from here or are they? Oh, you can answer from here, that's fine. As long as everyone can hear. Yeah. I think, um, I guess one of the um, uh, images I, I use in the book is, um, do you think of yourself as an artichoke or an onion? Um, an artichoke is a vegetable you, you take off all the bits on the outside to find the kind of precious, tasty bit in the middle. And I think that's a very sort of contemporary view of, of, um, of the self. In other words, that you know, we're all, we, you know, we have all these conventions, these expectations of other people, but we have, we have sort of an inner self, a kind of inner identity, which is somehow has to be discovered and found out who we really are. Um, that's one way view of the self. The other view of the self is, is the onion. In other words, you peel away the layers of the onion, and what do you find in the middle? Well, you don't find anything. In fact, the onion is the layers. In other words, that this, ourselves, I think in Christian understanding, uh, are neither um, some mysterious inner essence that you know, each one of us has that's different and individual from everybody else that we have to somehow discover, but neither is it an illusion, but it is built up and constructed over time um, by the relationships we have between ourselves. And I think that the, the mirror for this is actually our understanding of God, because our understanding of God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is of three persons who are defined by their relationships to one another. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are not three separate individuals who happen to choose, oh, let's come together and form a God. That's why we're not tritheists. You know, the Father is the Father of the Son. The Son is the Son of the Father. The Spirit is the, is the Spirit of the Father indwelling the Son and so on. So in other words, they are persons defined by their relationships. And I think that's what we are too. We are persons created by the relationships that we have, and by the roles that we play within society. So I am, I am actually, I think, a, a, a father, a husband, a citizen, a neighbour, a friend, before I'm an individual. And my individuality is created precisely by those relationships. So I think there, so I, I wouldn't go and say, you know, the, the self is an illusion, because I, but I do think ourselves are created over time, and in some ways, even beyond time. You know, the scripture says, we do not know yet what we shall be. So I think that's where I had question though. Yeah, so Graham, what, what are your recommendations for balancing how we sort ourselves out on the inside and how we sort our relationships on the outside? Yeah, it's a very good question and I think in, in a way you've, you've begun to answer it by, by saying that our, you know, if ourselves are created by our relationships, that that sort of journey in is actually never entirely separate from, our, from the relationships in which we, we encounter. Um, 
which is why the, you know the Christian. I mean, in a, in a secular context, you talk about mindfulness as something which increasingly people are being becoming aware of as being a really very helpful um, uh, way of stepping back from one's own interactions to become conscious of that. And we have a much longer tradition of that, which is called Christian prayer and contemplation. We've been doing this for two thousand years. We've been having that exercise of stepping away from the immediate activity and and reflecting upon God and the self. But I guess the difference is it. We're not just reflecting on ourselves, we're reflecting on ourselves in the presence of God himself. And that I think is a, is a subtly different but quite important difference between kind of mindfulness and, and, and prayer. Uh, it includes that sense of self-reflection. And you're absolutely right. Um, you don't want to get to the point where you're, you're not at all aware of yourself because we all know people who are totally unself-aware and they can cause a lot of damage. Um, but, uh, you know, as you, as you say, it often becomes by reflecting on uh, on relationships with others, but particularly in the presence of God and this and this sense of the of the trajectory towards which we are headed as as individuals, be reshaped in the image of Christ, people able to love God and love one's neighbour. But one can do that kind of self-reflection without despair um, or without becoming too introspective, because that's obviously the danger of that that side of the tradition. So, what do we learn from modern technology for the things that you're talking about here in Freedom? And the different aspects of modern technology, of course, it's a huge thing. I suppose the particular one that we're all conscious of is the whole sort of world of social media. Um, and as in fact, in my experience, I think it's both younger and older people who quite like it. My 95-year-old mother loves Facebook because it's her connection with the wider world. And um, it's, a, it's a great way for her to be sort of connected with many uh, other people as well. Um, so, um, but clearly, it seems to me that... Um, Social media is a kind of projection outside of what's often going on inside ourselves. A friend of mine um, was saying to me the other day about how, um, uh, I think it's in, in um, the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, I think that's right, I mean, you know, it may be wrong on this one, but there's a, a nation that um, is punished uh, by uh, everybody being able to read everyone else's minds. And you think how horrific that would be. <laughs> you could see what everyone else was and what they were thinking. The reality is that's Twitter. Because what happens in Twitter is that beforehand, you know, we all thought these things, but we never expressed them. We just sort of kept them to ourselves most of the time. Now, there's an incident that you can put your thoughts out there, so we can kind of read each other's minds now, and it's sometimes good, and it's sometimes quite unhealthy. It's a projection out there of what's going on inside ourselves. And so therefore, I don't think we can kind of, you can be, um, totally against or for social media because actually it's a reflection of what's really going on inside ourselves and it reveals something about the kind of complexity and, and um, both wonderfully created but deeply fallen and flawed nature of human, human life. Sometimes I think you know, Twitter confirms the Christian understanding of human beings as both created and fallen because we see both you know, some wonderful e episodes of, of compassion and, um, uh, and, and empathy uh, on social media, but you also see some pretty horrific uh, sort of bullying and, and um, uh, you know, really aggressive uh, behaviour. That's, that's so I guess my, my thoughts on technology is that it simply expresses what's going on inside us anyway, so therefore it's never a thing you can just say it's particularly good or bad necessarily. There are good uses of it and there are bad uses of it, um, but I think that's what I'd suggest. Okay, so you can become a government advisor that advises Facebook, <laughs> advises Facebook on how to set the limits of freedom. What would you tell them? Yeah. I, mean, I think there, there, is a, there is a value to Mill's principle of harm um, in that 
there clearly is a, a sense, a moral sense, that if something we are doing is causing uh, deliberate harm, well, not, not even deliberate, but sometimes unintentional, real harm to other people, there is a, a case for that to be restricted. I just don't think it can provide a, a, a total understanding of freedom. I don't think, because I don't think it gives us any teleology, it doesn't give us any direction for human life. So I'm not saying the principle of harm doesn't work, and I think it actually is quite, quite useful to, to that extent. It does help put places like, you know, companies like Google and Facebook, um, because that principle of harm does matter. Um, and if you provide a platform in which uh, people uh, do express um, intentions and uh, foster certain types of behavior which are going to lead to distinct social harm, uh, that has to be addressed. Now, there's a clearly a blurred line between you know, where harm starts and where it finishes, uh, and that's not an easy one to, 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 to address. But I think the, the broad principle still remains the same. But I think there's also there's something about Facebook and, um, and, and Google and Twitter and those things. I think there's also something on us as well who use them. And uh, I think for those of us who do use social media, I think it is good to actually reflect upon our own use of it. Back to the point about reflecting on your own self. Um, uh, I have a bit of a rule on, on social media as much as possible to try not to be... Um, well, not to be insulting and not to, not to be negative unless it really does need to be said. Um, there are occasions when, you know, something does need to be called out, but you sometimes feel there are people whose habit it is to simply foster negativity on, um, on, um, on Twitter. So, um, thinking twice before you tweet. Uh, people just fire off tweets all the time. Uh, I'm often conscious that when I'm going to say something a little bit controversial, I'll sleep on it for a night and try and sort of think, is this the right thing to say? Just let the emotions sort of drain. You want to fire off something to say it's, you know, something's terrible or something's like that, acted very badly. So I think we can both direct it to the, the companies, but also, also we have to do that self-monitoring as to how we use it too. Okay, thank you. So that's a question using Nigeria, particularly as an example, and the United States, but how do we relate Christian faith and freedom to the political world around us and the realities of that freedom or lack of it? Yes, I mean, I think as you say, there are unsubtle and subtle forms of imperialism and colonialism within our world today. We don't tend to have kind of political empires in quite the same way, but the empires are different. They're empires of influence, they're empires of, back to our previous question, you know, empires not necessarily of states, but of, um, of, of vast companies that influence people's behaviour, but are not necessarily accountable in quite the same way that governments are. Um, and I think... The, the, the kind of colonial background and that sense of nations uh, appealing to an idea of freedom. And I think, to be honest, I think all three of the characters I was thinking about, you know, Locke and Mill and Rousseau, are reacting to a, a, a sort of, um, um, they're in a, an imperialist world. That world from the sort of 17th to the 19th century was the period of the great empires. Uh, they were the period of, of, you know, dominant governments, and dominant church even. And they were arguing for liberty from that sense of a, a very controlling state. Um, and, uh, and that's why I think um, an idea that I think Isaiah Berlin particularly kind of focuses upon this distinction between freedom from and freedom for becomes quite crucial. Uh, they were largely thinking about freedom from in the sense of freedom from restriction, freedom from uh, the, the, the impulses of others, uh, freedom from um, you know, imperialism, whether in the past or empires or American imperialism today or whatever it might be. Um, but the big question, I think, is what is the freedom for? And I'm not sure they really had an answer to that question. 
And that's where I think Christian faith does give us an answer to that question, what freedom is for. Um, and uh, but then translating that into political life, I think it means recovering a little bit of that sense of, which the Greeks had, of government not just being about the policing of um, you know, individual freedoms, but in some way cultivating virtue. What, in, what are the institutions that cultivate virtue in our society? Now, that may not be the role of government, but it may be the role of government to enable those institutions that are there to cultivate virtue. And things like religions, um, but other kind of uh, institutions within our society do have that explicit thing about cultivating virtue, cultivating the kind of life that breeds a good, healthy human life. And I think that's what, um, that's what we need to do more of. Thank you very much. I'm sorry to disappoint those of you who've not had the opportunity to ask your question. Um, but if you're free to do so, and the bishop is free afterwards, uh, do come and have a chat to him with your question too. Um, Graham, thank you very much indeed for your very stimulating input and thought. And if you want to know more of the detail of what Graham's arguments are, you'll find them in this book. Um, it's work in progress, Graham tells me. He's working on his next um, set of thoughts about this. Uh, so do follow him uh, on Twitter or anywhere else you'd like to do so. Um, because we're very lucky to have him as one of the key people who as a bishop in the Church of England, is nonetheless very much engaged in educational and thoughtful life. Um, there is the opportunity to buy the book uh, afterwards, so please do come and do that. Um, but can we say thank you very much indeed to Graham for all he's done for us. Thank you.